Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 11, verse 16. We finished last week in verse 15 of Jeremiah 11. Jeremiah had again been told not to pray for this people. We saw within the context of Jeremiah 11, verses 1 through 15, the faithfulness of God from perhaps a little bit of a different perspective than we would normally think it. The faithfulness of God, not as it relates to the positive aspects of God's blessing, but the faithfulness of God as it relates to the negative aspects of God's cursing. And we saw from our time together last week that even in the curses that God had promised to lay upon the nation of Israel, uh, which would indeed lead them, according to Deuteronomy, into captivity, that these were as much an extension of God's faithfulness to the promises that he had made to the nation as were his positive blessings, as were the fact that there would be no plagues. And we'll see again in a couple of weeks uh, from now as we study a... a, uh, a drought in the land. Once again, this is something that the Old Testament law said would happen if the people did not obey. So we saw, we saw the faithfulness of God, and we stopped in verse 15. We're going to pick up in verse 16 of Jeremiah 11 and try to get all the way through the end of Jeremiah um, 12, all the way through verse 17 this week. It's a, perhaps a, a slightly ambitious portion of Scripture in one sense. Um, And the primary focus of it is going to be Jeremiah himself and the ministry that the Lord had given to him. We are going to have an opportunity to dig into the mind of Jeremiah and the heart of Jeremiah in a way that perhaps we have not yet been able to. Jeremiah is one of the prophets that is very, very transparent. And and, uh, he he wears his emotions on his sleeves. He really wears himself on his sleeves. We know a lot of what Jeremiah is thinking. You recall early in the book where uh, the Lord gave these judgments and they were rejected by the people. So Jeremiah said, okay, well then I guess I'll go to the leaders. The leaders will listen to me. And, And that did not work so well. And uh, Jeremiah has had times where he's been sorrowful and, and, and he says uh, he's desired that his tears would run like fountains out of his eyes for his people. And, and all of these different things that have been happening where Jeremiah has been expressing his emotions and, and, and his anguish and his angst and his passion and his zeal. And we're going to see some more of Jeremiah's emotions this evening. And we're going to learn some things, not just today about Jeremiah, but about, in in some ways, ministers in general. It's going to give you all an insight, perhaps a little bit, into uh, the life and the emotional state of a minister. It is not one, if if you've ever studied uh, various ministers, particularly uh, if you've ever read biographies of ministers, uh, men who have been extremely effective in ministry for whatever reason, one of the things that you'll find is that they are often very emotionally volatile. This is not necessarily because ministers are, 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 are uh, unique uh, humans in, in that regard, but uh, as we mentioned a little bit in Sunday school this morning, ministry is uniquely difficult. And I'm not saying it's more difficult than anything else or, 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 or to compare it one way or another, but there is a uniqueness to ministry, a uniqueness that comes from being commissioned by God to be a truth teller to a world that by and large does not want to hear truth. 
a uniqueness to a ministry whereby you are called by God to bear spiritual burdens of others, not just the spiritual burdens of yourself. And for we all who know how burdensome spiritual burdens can be, to bear the spiritual burdens not just of yourself, but of a flock can be a very difficult task. And so we're going to focus in part this evening, perhaps more than in part, on ministers in general. Those who have been called and chosen and gifted by God with the commission to be truth tellers, to be fishers of men, to be sheep dogs for the good shepherd's flock. And so we're going to learn some important things about Jeremiah, some important things about ministers as a whole, and naturally some important things about God as well. Now, by saying that the focus is upon the Lord's ministers, I by no means desire to imply that you as believers who are not ministers cannot relate to these things, uh, to, cannot relate to the idea of bearing one another's burdens. In fact, we are all commanded to bear one another's burdens and so to fulfill the law of Christ. And yet Jeremiah is coming from a unique place here, expressing burdens which at the very least are magnified in the hearts and minds and bodies of men who have been called to make people their lives. We're going to pick up in Jeremiah 11, as we've said, last week having finished in verse 15, upon God's faithfulness. We pick up in verse 16 this evening, and the Bible says this, The Lord called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. And I apologize for jumping so deeply into a context here. Let's go back one verse just for a little bit of context. What hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from thee when thou doest evil? Then thou rejoicest. The Lord called thy name a green olive tree, fair and, good, and of goodly fruit. With the noise of great tumult, he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. So we find Jeremiah addressing the people here in a tone that is full of sorrow. Perhaps a better word would almost be regret. He weeps for the choices of his people, for their selfishness, and as we'll see in verse 17, for the self-destructive nature of their choices. Imagine being a man commissioned as Isaiah was, as Jeremiah was, as so many of the prophets were, to go into a people and God explicitly telling you they are not going to listen to you, by the way. This is what Ezekiel went through. Have you ever studied the passage of the watchman where God says it's your job to be the watchman to call? It's not your job to make anyone listen to Ezekiel. When Isaiah was commissioned and he saw the Lord high and lifted up sitting upon a throne and God says, you're going to go tell the people and Isaiah says, Lord, how long? And he says, till, till the nations are rubble. You're going to keep calling out to them until the nation is rubble because they will not listen to you. So Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel are commissioned to be, may I put it in a worldly sense, ministerial failures by God's will. They were there to be the voice to which when Israel stood before the Lord in judgment, God could say, I had someone there for you and you ignored him. And so... Jeremiah is lamenting this state. He recounts that 
uh, to the nation that the Lord had called them a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit, that they had been what God desired them to be, a, a fruitful plant, as it were. He saw them. He regarded them. He indeed made them a beautiful and a fruitful nation. He had given them every blessing. He had given them every opportunity. He had given them every advantage. But now their actions were forcing God's hand. Uh, They are a diseased tree, which had many branches which had been broken, had been burned to the ground. The message continues in verses 17 and 18. For the Lord of hosts that planted thee, continuing with the tree analogy, hath pronounced evil against thee for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense unto Baal. And the Lord hath given me knowledge of it, that's Jeremiah speaking, and I know it, then thou showedst me their doings. So staying with the illustration, the illustrative context of the nation as an olive tree, Jeremiah acknowledges that it was the Lord himself that had planted this tree, and now the Lord himself would judge this tree, both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But notice the next phrase at the end of verse 17, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger. Jeremiah is seeking to vindicate the Lord's righteousness and the Lord's righteous choices here. God had planted them. He had established the boundaries of their lives and their fruitfulness. He had every right to tear them down And he had given them the conditions upon which he would tear them down. And they, against themselves, were acted in such a way as to incur the Lord's penalty. They put themselves upon a path of self-destruction through their idolatry. They put themselves in line for God's judgments through their own selfishness and evil. They are working against themselves through their decisions and choices. Perhaps you have known a few of these people in your life where they know what is right And yet they are choosing the wrong. They are acting against themselves. And there's really no other way to put it. And you, as one who who knows them, who is perhaps praying for them, you don't delight in seeing God be faithful in in His chastening and be faithful in the consequences that He promised would happen as these people work against their own best good. And yet at the same time, you know what's going to happen. You know it. Because the path of error always leads toward the same end. Jeremiah directs his thoughts toward their treatment of him next. He says in regard to their actions that they have done these evils, and then the Lord had made Jeremiah know it. So Jeremiah says, you've done all of this. And not only have you been working against yourself, but here's the thing, Israel. God has... Because of the commission that he has given to me, Jeremiah speaking, because of the commission that he's given to me, God has made me know everything. They say ignorance is bliss. It's really nice when you don't know how rebellious people are. It's really nice if Jeremiah could just go through his life seeking to 
to, to, to live for the Lord on his own and not have to have before his eyes all of the evils. Uh, you recall reading over the past many chapters where Jeremiah sees the evil coming, where he sees uh, in, in his mind's eye, perhaps through a prophetic vision, the dead bodies, where he sees uh, the, the, the people starving in the cities, where he sees these things and he weeps for them because he can see them and he just wishes that others could see it too. He says, the Lord has made it known to me. I have had to bear this burden on your behalf. It's, it's not enough for, for me just to bear my own burdens, but the Lord is showing me your end and I am filled with zeal and compassion and sorrow and righteous indignation over your sin. I am bearing these burdens with you. He is receiving in of himself the brunt of their wickedness because of the commission that the Lord has given him. Because the Lord has shown them, him, their doings. Because God has chosen Jeremiah for this task. Now keep this context shift in mind, that Jeremiah is shifting toward the burden that he is bearing in this, because it will form the basis of much of what we'll study tonight. A minister is a man called of God. He is not a man who decides to be a minister. He is a man who is called by God to be a minister. He doesn't always say yes to that call, and there is a point where he must say yes and submit himself to it. But it is a called position, and with that calling comes blessings and rewards, but with that calling also comes burdens and consequences. Of which we begin to read in verse 19. Jeremiah says, But I was like a a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more, may be no more remembered. So Jeremiah describes the results of the Lord's call upon his life in verse 19. He says that he was like a lamb or an ox brought to the slaughter. If I may summarize this, Jeremiah's ministry was kind of like being told to walk into a meat grinder. God tells Jeremiah to go and preach to a people who will not listen and more so will react violently and hate him for what he is doing. It also indicates the relative ignorance with which he entered into this ministry. You, do you recall the zeal with which he entered in, as we mentioned already? And here he says, I was like a lamb to the slaughter. That phrase that we use, like a lamb to the slaughter, it indicates someone or something who is innocently going into a situation, not knowing the full implications of what they're about to do, and then it's not till they get there that they realize uh, the fullest difficulty of the thing that they have uh, already committed themselves to do. They were not anticipating the sorrow or the destruction of the burdens or whatever it might be. Jeremiah describes his prophetic office this way. And we know this already that that Jeremiah, he entered the ministry very optimistic and yet uh, the people have torn him down. The people have rejected God in spite of his teachings and his cries. But not only that, they have conspired against him personally. Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof. They are the withered olive tree that is burning at the roots, that branches have fallen off. And they look to the side and they see Jeremiah as a fruitful tree. And they say, they look at themselves and they look at him and they say, they look at themselves and they look at him and they say, something's wrong here. Jeremiah says, yeah, 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 you're getting it. Something's wrong here. And they say, we need to burn you to the ground too. That's what's wrong here. You've seen this in society. You've seen this among others. 
You've seen this in any, uh, any number of walks of life. That the man who is living right, the man who is living righteously, those that are around him who recognize it, they often don't see it as a call to live righteously themselves. They see it as a call to tear him down. That's what they want to do to Jeremiah. He says, let us, this is them speaking, this is the nation speaking, let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, let us cut him off from the land of the living. In other words, and you'll see this in just a moment, they're trying to, they want Jeremiah dead. They, are, they want to kill him for his message. That's what they want. Verse 20. But, O Lord of hosts, that judgest righteously, that triest the reins and the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I revealed my cause. Jeremiah does the only thing he can do. He lays his burden before the Lord. These people want him dead, and so he appeals to the righteous judge to judge between him and the people. He acknowledges that God tries what he calls the reins. The idea of this phrase is the motivations. If you think of the reins of a horse, you grab the reins of a horse in order to direct the horse in the way that that horse should go. If the horse is, is properly bridled, then the reins are going to be able to turn the horse in the way that it should go. So the idea of the reins, someone's reins, is their motivations, the thing that actually causes them to turn one direction or another. See, God does not just judge actions. This is where a lot of religious people get things wrong. They think that as long as they are externally clean, that they've, they've done all of the external stuff, that that's enough for God. But see, the problem is, is that God tries the reins in the heart. God doesn't just try actions. God doesn't just judge actions. He judges motivations. This is what, what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount spoke of, right? Thou hast said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto thee, that if thou lookest upon a woman to lust after her in thy heart, that's the reins, that's the motivations, thou hast committed adultery in thy heart already. That's the idea. God tries the reins, God tries the motivations, God tries the heart. This is not uh, just, God is not just in the business of what we do, he's in the business of why we do it. Plenty of people do outwardly moral things. But the reins, the thing which drives our actions, that matters just as much. And that truly is the difference between a follower of God or a moralizer or religio and, and religiosity. There's a big difference in the eyes of God between someone who goes to church to earn heaven and a person who goes to church because he knows that heaven is already his through Christ. The first is religiosity, traditionalism, legalism, name the, the term, moralism. The second is pleasing unto the Lord, though they may look the exact same outwardly. To this end, Jeremiah appeals to God for justice. Try their motives, God says. Try my motives and avenge me against those who actually want to kill me. Jeremiah ought to appeal to the Lord, not just because it's right, but remember all the way back in Jeremiah 1, what God said. God said, as long as you're faithful, I will protect you. I will make you a stone wall. I will make you a solid wall against them. They will not be able to harm you. But only if you fulfill the commission. God responds to Jeremiah in verses 21 to 23. He says this, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of the, uh, of the men of Anathoth, 
that seek thy life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord, that thou die not by our hand. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring evil upon the men of Anathoth, even in the year of their, even the year of their visitation. So we glean more information about the death threat that Jeremiah is under in verse 21. It was a group of men of the city of Anathoth seeking to kill Jeremiah and warning him, if you continue to prophesy in the name of the Lord, we are going to kill you. Stop prophesying so you don't have to die by our hand. This is fascinating because the Anathoth was a city in the region of Benjamin, but it was a priestly city. It had been given to the Levites. We know little else about these men making the threats. We know that a couple of David's mighty men came from Anathoth. But it is very possible, being that it was a priestly city, that the men who are making these death threats against Jeremiah are of the priestly order. And that would not be incompatible with what we've read about the priests throughout Jeremiah, right? That the prophets and the priests and the pastors have profaned the name of the Lord. We'll see it all the more over the next several chapters. Their message to Jeremiah is one of violence, threatening his life if he does not stop prophesying in the name of the Lord. And as we have said so many times throughout our series, as we have seen in, in culture and society and politics so many times, in a culture of lies, truth is considered violence and truth is considered evil. To this end, telling the truth to a nation, to this nation, was considered so offensive to them that threatening Jeremiah with death if he continues was their solution. The Lord answers these men in verse 22 and his message to them is that he will punish them, that he will destroy them, that their young men will die by the sword, that their children will die by famine, that there will be no remnant left in the city, that, that it is their time of visitation. Remember that there were three deportations throughout Jeremiah's ministry. 605, 598, 587 B.C. It is quite possible that this prophecy is coming right before one of those times of deportation, right before one of those times of conquering, right at a time where there will be another tremendous um, uh, a time of disparity and, and, and difficulty in the land. Either way, God says it is time to visit the evil of these men upon them. So the Lord is doing exactly what he promised to do for Jeremiah, and this is important. That as a minister of God, Jeremiah had a calling upon him to say some things and the Lord was going to protect his own. The Lord was going to protect Jeremiah and indeed he did. Continuing into chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says this, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. This is Jeremiah writing, Yet let me talk to thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy? that deal very treacherously. As we transition into chapter 12, we find Jeremiah speaking directly to the Lord. We find a prayer of his to God, and we will find very likely that God's direct response to the threats of the men of Anathoth has caused Jeremiah to do a little thinking. Jeremiah receives death threats. God says, I will punish them. And Jeremiah says, well, that seems kind of easy, right? God, these people are threatening my life. God says, okay, I'll destroy them. 
well, then, God, let's talk about your judgments. Let's talk about justice. Let's talk about how you meet that out. Let's talk about the wicked. See, because my whole ministry is about talking to wicked people. And, and God, the problem is now there's this city of Anathoth and they're going to get theirs, right? You're going to destroy their, their sons with the sword and their children are going to die of famine. And yet, what about all these other wicked people? They're all happy. They're all prospering. Why is the way of the wicked prospering? Why are they all so happy that are so treacherous? Why are all the people that are falsely accusing, that are, 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 are murdering, that are, are, are cheating and are stealing and are lying, why are all those people going home at night to their big houses and to their cars and to all of their uh, things that they've received from their dirty dealings and, and they're, they're resting comfortably and they're eating well and they're happy? And, and, and why? why? Why are they prosperous? They're so wicked. If you're willing to so directly deal with the men of Anathoth and their evil, then why not so directly deal with all of the evil of the land? And then spare the rest of the land. Why deal with the whole land? Well, the answer, of course, in part, is the whole land has been corrupted, right? But this is Jeremiah's idea. Why? Why are the wicked so prosperous? And boy, this is not just a Jeremiah question, is it? David asks this question regularly. Isaiah asks this question. Habakkuk, really, the, the entire book of Habakkuk is this question. So he asks God to have a conversation with him about his judgments, those questions. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Why are the wicked so prosperous, God? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Why do wicked people seem to be so very happy? And why does their treachery, why is, the, why is their treachery so fruitful? Why is their treachery so fruitful? All of their, their scheming and manipulations and their sinning, and in, in all of it, they get what they want. They get their money and they get their things and they're living in luxury. If two guys can't afford a car... The guy who steals the car has the car while the honest guy is left without the car, right? How is that fair, God? Jeremiah continues to elaborate in verse 2. Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. Now he's talking about the particular character of the people. This... Um, this would perhaps help lead us to believe that the men who are threatening him are of the priestly teaching class. Jeremiah describes these people and he says that these people, these wicked people, they have been planted in the land. They are rooted in the land. They, they are people of influence. They are people who God is near to their mouths but far from their reins. They love, they they talk all the time about loving and serving God. They talk about God's blessings, but their actions and intents are evil and are wicked and are treacherous. Remember, Jeremiah has seen it. God has shown it unto them. Jeremiah knows what's happening. Again, if we want to correspond this a little bit to like perhaps Ezekiel. Remember when God took Ezekiel through the visions of the temple? And with each successive vision, Jeremiah saw a woman uh, with her back to the temple, uh, bowing to the sun and weeping for Tammuz. 
And then they go deeper into the temple and Jeremiah ends up in a hole underneath the temple where the priests of God are underneath the temple in a hole under the temple with, with all sorts of pagan symbols around them worshiping false gods under the temple. So during the day, they would, they, they would perform all of these religious acts into Jehovah and then at night they would crawl under the temple and they would have a pagan worship session to, to, to Satan and the false gods. And so perhaps in, in a similar way, Jeremiah looks at these men of Anathoth who are threatening death against him and looks at the, uh, the whole priestly class and the whole prophetic class of people, the teachers, and, and, and he says they, they get up every day and they talk about Jehovah. And they talk about our God and they talk about his blessings and, and, and he's on the tip of their tongues and they speak about them. But inside, in their hearts, I've seen it. I know what they do. At night, I know what they do in the dark. I know what they do when no one else is watching. God has shown it to me. These are evil men. Why are you letting it happen? Why are they prospering? Why is it that on any given day, I'm in the temple saying, repent, for there is judgment. And they're in the temple saying, don't listen to Jeremiah. Things are going to be fine. Why is it that they are prospering and not me? This is Jeremiah's struggle Jeremiah says, God, why do you allow it? Why are you so long-suffering? Why are these evil people prospering? As I've mentioned, I don't know that there is any writing prophet in the Old Testament who didn't struggle with this. I don't know that there are many true believers in, to some degree who don't struggle with this. We could go to passage after passage after passage that asks the same question. Why are evil people so happy? Why are there so many, uh, so many obedient servants of God who are suffering? Why is it that it seems as though the ministers who are most faithful to the word of God are the least successful? And why is it that the ones who are least successful to the word of God yet claim God are the ones who seem to be most successful? God, why is the economy of, uh, of things this way? Well, these are difficult questions, but they do have definitive answers. God is going to answer the question. It's not going to come until around verse 7, though. Until then, we need to continue to explore the heart of Jeremiah. Verses 3 and 4, Jeremiah says, But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell therein? The beasts are consumed and the birds because they said, He shall not see our last end. Jeremiah paints a contrast here. Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm not trying to say this in pride or in judgment. You know me. You know my heart. You know you have tried me. Put me against them. Try my heart and my motivations against their heart and their motivations and pull them out. The idea here of pulling them out is an idea that ranchers call culling the herd. The idea of a cull is an animal that has no redeeming value. An animal which is uh, it's, it's, it's no good. Uh, it... Um, 
takes more than it will give back. It is a liability to the herd. It's slow, it's sickly, it's lame. It has some problem that is making it a liability to the flock or to the herd rather than a benefit to you, and it's simply not worth it. So you cull them. You take them out of the herd. You get rid of them so that the herd as a whole can be healthy. That, that's a cull. It is a, a rather useless animal. Jeremiah asked God to take out those sheep for slaughter, to prepare them for a day of slaughter, to pull out the evil men, to prepare them for that day. He asked God, how long must the land mourn under the wickedness of these leaders? How long must the whole land be forced to suffer under their evil leadership, under their evil influence? And they do so Because they do not believe that God will do what he says he will do through the voice of Jeremiah. And so they live in their evil dream world. The beasts and the birds, the whole land are consumed. And Jeremiah places it at the feet of these men. He recognizes that the whole land is following in wickedness, but he puts it on the responsibility of those who are supposed to be leading. The pastors the priests, and the prophets. He says, if you just call them from the herd, if you just get rid of them, then the people might listen. Verses 5 and 6. If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou, hast, thou trusteth, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? For even thy brethren in the house of thy father, even they have dealt treacherously with thee. Yea, they have called a multitude after thee. Believe them not, though they speak fair words unto thee. In verse 5, we see God speak and, and speak to Jeremiah of the disparity between the proclaimed dealings with men of Anathoth and these other priests and prophets and teachers. And there's a proverbial illusion here. The illusion of footmen and horses alongside of a chariot or alongside of a coach in, in later days would be footmen. And these attendants would generally run alongside the chariot or would run alongside the carriage so, so that they could t attend upon their master during arrival. If, uh, in, in later days, of course, the footmen would be able to ride on the sides of these carriages and such. Uh, but in Jeremiah's day, uh, very likely, at least to the extent that this illusion is being given, uh, this would have been uh, a group of people who the master would be riding in the, the, the chariot and the footmen would jog alongside until such time as they got to their location and they would attend upon their master. So the footmen thus would only go as fast as the horses in order to keep up with the chariot or the carriage. They wouldn't necessarily run ahead. They wouldn't run behind. They would just keep up with the horses. And, and uh, the, the uh, allusion here likens the footmen to the men of Anathoth and the rest of the nation to horses. And uh, so the idea is if you're angry with the speed of the footmen, so much that you're dealing very harshly or so much that, that the, the, the men of Anathoth are being dealt with harshly. Sorry, I think before I said that God was speaking to Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah speaking to God. Jeremiah says to God, if you're angry with the footmen, 
as they run alongside so that you deal harshly with the sons of Anathoth? Then why are you not treating the horses with the same contempt? Right? Why are you not angry at the horses that are going at this speed if you're punishing the, the, the footmen for going at that speed? It's really the horses that are setting the pace for the footmen, right? It's not the footmen setting the pace for the horses. So Jeremiah is asking, why aren't you punishing the ones that are setting the pace, not just the ones that are keeping pace? So Jeremiah, I hope you're seeing what's going on here. Jeremiah says there are leaders, the, men of, the, the sons of Anathoth. This, they, they are not the deeper problem. They are listening to other leaders, other teachers. You're punishing the, the ones that are keeping pace with the teachers, that are listening to the teachers, rather than punishing the teachers themselves that are teaching falsely. You're punishing the footmen rather than the horses. But the thing is, is that the horses are the ones that are, are, that are setting the pace. The footmen are just keeping pace. The sons of Anathoth are just the ones that are listening to the bad teaching of these other teachers and so threatening me. But you're punishing the sons of Anathoth rather than the ones that are, that are compelling their poor behavior. And then he, he uh, says a similar thing about the land, uh, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So Jeremiah finds this confusing at best. He repeats the perceived inconsistency in the illusion of this land. He says that... Uh, if the land is at peace, wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do at the swelling of Jordan? In other words, if the land wearies you, if you don't trust the land or you're weary with the land uh, when, when the land is peaceable, then what are you going to do when there's floods in the Jordan Valley and there's intended to be a similar idea behind that illusion? If the relatively peaceful land is evil, why are the more dangerous lands ignored? So he's saying that the sons of Anathoth are like the peaceful land and the, the, the evil teachers are like the flooded lands. And he says, why, why are you extremely angry against the, the, the peaceful lands? I mean, they wanted to kill him, but this is the illusion he's giving. But you're ignoring the flooded lands. Jeremiah uses this familiar, familial language, very familiar, to drive home the point. Everyone is against God, and thus Jeremiah. It's not just the enemies at the gates. And those enemies at the gates, the sons of Anathoth, Jeremiah is convinced, are being compelled by other teachers unto their threats. We might think of it in, in the terms uh, uh, that we could relate to among people today. There are... There is incendiary rhetoric, right, that goes around in political circles and cultural circles where somebody says terribly uh, um, incendiary things like these people are evil for what they're doing. And then people are listening to their incendiary rhetoric and they're hearing these people are evil, these people are evil, those people are evil. So then those people who have been hearing leaders say these people are evil go and hurt those people. And there's this connection, right, between the incendiary rhetoric and the person that then goes and hurts someone else. So Jeremiah is saying, I see that this person is the one that wants to hurt me, but their desire to hurt me comes from this person. So you're punishing this person, but why not that person? This is the conflict going on in Jeremiah's heart. Hope that makes sense. Is it because somehow God doesn't think these men are as evil? 
Maybe these men have not made the verbal threats against Jeremiah, but surely the Lord must see their reins, right? He must know. We can't judge. We, 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 we can't punish a person for their, for their rhetoric. You don't do that, right? If a person says something mean, and then somebody else takes those mean statements and hurts a person because of it, you don't punish the person that said the mean thing. He has every right to say it. You can only judge the action of the person that took that mean thing and turned it into action. I mean, unless they were directly compelling it, right? Hope you're understanding that. It's kind of the same idea here. Jeremiah is saying, what's going on here, Lord? I don't understand. He continues to lament the fleecing of the land at the hand of these false teachers who have convinced the people to be indifferent to the message of the Lord and to hate Jeremiah. But in verse 7, the Lord begins his response. He says this, verses 7 through 9, I have forsaken mine house. I have left mine heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Mine heritage is unto me as a lion in the forest. It crieth out against me. Therefore have I hated it. Mine heritage is unto me as a speckled bird. The birds round about are against her. Come ye, assemble all the beasts of the field. Come to devour. So Jeremiah spoke and asked with indignation, God, how can you let them do this to me and to your land? And God responds, in fact, with sorrow. God effectively says this to Jeremiah. How can you tell me I've done nothing? Have you not seen? Have you not written the very words? I have forsaken mine house. I have left mine heritage. Every day that Israel is under the curse, every day of drought, every day of plague, every day of famine, every day where the blessing is withheld, this is, this is God doing something. This is God in sorrow, having given the beloved of his soul into the hand of her enemies. God says, Jeremiah, you're not seeing things properly and you're not seeing things properly because you're a little bit emotional right now. You're thinking about yourself. And it's understandable because he's got people threatening his life. And it's understandable because the people are not, are not listening to him. But it doesn't change the fact that God's timing, God's ways, that God is not just ignoring them. He says, Mine heritage is unto me as a lion in the forest that crieth out against me. He says, my heritage, my people, my beloved land, they are forcibly resisting me. Jeremiah, you think you feel bad. How do you think I feel? Do you think I don't understand, Jeremiah? Do you think I, don't, I have not regarded what the rejection of you and the things against you means about me. See, Jeremiah, if they've rejected you, the only reason why they've rejected you is because they first rejected me. Jeremiah, if they're angry against you, imagine how they feel about me. Take careful note of the tone of God's response because it forms the basis for the fullness of God's answer to Jeremiah on this. Just like with so many, just like with Jonah, just like with Habakkuk, just like with so many others, God acknowledges that those whom he loves are now his enemy, not because God has made them his enemy, but because they have made God their enemy, opposing God's will, opposing God's way. He likens the nation to a speckled bird, uh, an impure bird, a tainted bird, just as Jeremiah alluded to earlier, a bird 
that is not right, is not pure, that, that, uh, whose value has been removed through its taint. And God is now going to allow them to be devoured. But this is not a thing of pleasure to the Lord. God says, don't think I am ignoring them. And don't think that I'm happy or I'm okay with what's going on, Jeremiah. Verses 10 and 11. Many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate. And being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate because no man layeth it to heart. God says, Jeremiah, I hear the land mourning. Have you ever thought about what it means when... Cain killed Abel, and God says, The blood of thy brother from the ground crieth out unto me. What, what does that mean? Is that just poetic language, or, or does God hear something? Or is there, is there, like in Revelation, the voices of the martyrs that cry day and night, asking the Lord to avenge them. This, this cry of God's people whom he loves and who have accepted him coming before him and into his ears. God says, I hear the land mourning. It has been mourning unto me. The land is made desolate. God says, I look at the land that I have given mine heritage and I see pastors who have trodden down my vineyard, who have destroyed it. Don't think, Jeremiah, that I don't care. Don't think I don't know and don't think I don't feel it too. God agrees with Jeremiah. God recognizes the evil of these pastors, of these leaders in the land. They are the ones who have destroyed his, his vineyard. They are the ones who have trodden his people underfoot. They have made what was a fruitful people now a barren wilderness. They have taken what was green grass and lush fields and made it nothing but dust and sand. And all of this is the answer to Jeremiah's questions about God's judgment. The general direction of God's reply is, don't think for a moment anyone has gotten away with anything. And don't think for a moment that I don't care. But I love my people. I don't delight in their destruction, but I am going to. And God has purposed that he will give them a chance to repent. Things get more specific in verse 12. The spoilers are come upon all high places through the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to even to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat, but shall reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but shall not profit. They shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Lord. God says, the spoilers are coming, Jeremiah. It's one of those funny things we as ministers sometimes get this way. It's not uncommon and it's not even necessarily something that we can fully control. That we just get into these moods. <laughs> We're a moody bunch. Where we say, no one's listening, God. I'm not having any effect, God. Don't you care? And then we're reminded of some perspective. And the perspective is, uh, is this. Jamin, maybe the reason why things are going the way they're going is because I'm giving people time. Maybe the reason why is because there's things happening behind the scenes that you don't know. But don't think this for a minute, Jamin, that I don't care about the ministry. That I don't care about Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. Don't think for a moment that I don't care about what those people are doing or are not doing that's not God 
God says things are happening here, and he's telling Jeremiah what's going to happen. He says that they have planted wheat in the land, but they will not be allowed to eat of it. That means judgment is coming soon. That means that they have planted, but they will not be around by the time harvest comes. We're talking months away here. He says they have put in a, a, a great deal of labor. They have put themselves to pain. They've had a lot of nights where they've gone to bed sore through the plowing and through the planting and, and through the building of new things and none of it's going to profit them because by the time any of it comes to fruition, they're out of here. They're dead. They're gone. God says, think about that, Jeremiah. It is coming. Now in verse 14, we see, as it were, the direct correlation between the pronouncements of God against the men of Anathoth and those against the rest of the evil men in Israel. The Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. So God promises that the offenders will be dealt with, that he will pluck them out of the land, that the nation of evil will be brought to judgment, that God will vindicate his name and he will vindicate his followers. But we don't stop there. We must never stop there. We never stop with judgment. I'm telling you, if you read judgment in the Old Testament, if you read God speaking of judgment against Israel, the next thing you should be looking for is where his mercy lies is where his love is found, is where repentance can be, can, can be secured. See, the point of Jeremiah's question is vengeance, and God answers and says vengeance is coming, but God loves his people so much he will not make an end of them. So we read, as we always do, coupled with judgment, mercy, 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 15 through 17, and it shall come to pass, after that I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them and will bring them again every man to his heritage and every man to his land and it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name the Lord liveth as they taught my people to swear by Baal then they shall be built in the midst of my people but if they will not obey I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation saith the Lord. Mercy, compassion. After they have been judged, God will have mercy on them. God will restore the people to their heritage and to their land. And then they will have another chance. And if they will learn to swear by the name of the Lord, as they had once taught to swear by the name of Baal, then God will have mercy upon them and they will prosper. And God says if they don't obey, then it's going to start all over again. Then the cycle will start all over again. Then the judgment's going to happen again. Because Jeremiah, don't think for a moment that anyone gets away with anything. Such has always been the way of the Lord. His judgments are indeed just and right and straight. No one gets away with anything. And this brings us to our application this evening. I have three points to take you on. There are three questions, um, sort of. Uh, the middle one's kind of more of a speculation. I want to uh, take, take it and run with it for a moment. It's going to perhaps be a little bit jarring, but uh, I want to bring it up anyway. Um, 
question number one, how do you respond to truth? So to some degree, of course, this is a bit of a rehash. We've spoken throughout Jeremiah about how a society that is not founded upon truth responds violently to truth when it is told. To that end, I've warned, perhaps on a couple of occasions, about the tendency of those who dislike truth to impose that dislike upon truth tellers. In other words, to, to kill the messenger, right? We've seen this play out in various ways, and I'm not going to rehash that point. I'm not going to rehash that you need to be prepared if you are going to, to determine to be a follower of God, to have those reactions against you, particularly as society draws farther and farther away from the Lord. Uh, we, we've talked about that before. My, my point this evening is to not, to not to warn you to expect resistance when you tell the truth or live the truth among the unbelieving world. Uh, rather, my desire is to, to cause you to turn inward this evening, and I'd like to ask you about how you respond to truth. See, you love the Bible, and you love God, and I love the Bible, and I love God, and we all want to know the Bible, and we believe the Bible is truth, and I can't say that there's anyone here this evening necessarily who has a natural aversion to truth, who doesn't like truth, who doesn't appreciate truth, who doesn't have a regard for the nature of truth and understand the importance of truth, but, but then we get real for a moment. Have you ever known the truth but still been angry at someone for telling it to you? This is very common among siblings. I saw it just the other day among a couple of my children. When one of my children knows what they're supposed to do, but they're not doing it. And then another sibling comes up and says, you're supposed to be doing this. And they get so angry at being told. Even if mom and dad comes up and says, you need to do this. I know. Well, and they get angry. They get angry at being told the truth. Well, yes, but I know you know, or maybe I didn't know you knew, but either way, you're not doing it, right? And yet we get angry, and this is, this is not uncommon. Have you ever known the truth but still been angry at someone for telling you the truth? When you are angry and someone comes up and quotes a Bible verse about anger, and you just say, I don't, I don't want to hear that right now. I don't care. You get angry. Er, angry-er. In that particular example, as Paul would say to the church of Galatia, as he called them to maintain their loyalty to the true gospel, he asked them, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? This is called pride. And it works up in us in any number of ways. Maybe you're supposed to do something. You know it. You aren't doing it. Then mom, as I've said, mom or dad or brother or sister says you're supposed to do that thing. I already know that. Why, why did you get angry just then? Why did you get angry at somebody telling you that? It's pride. It's pride. It's a little something in you that, that, that knows that you're supposed to be doing something and you're not doing it, and you're angry that someone is telling you to do it because now you are more accountable to do it and you don't have as much to hide behind to rationalize in your own heart and mind as to why you're not doing what you ought to be doing. What about picking and choosing our truths? We preach about intemperance as it relates to things such as alcohol and mind-altering drugs, but, but what about as it relates to food or as it relates to material possessions? We preach about modesty as it relates to length and tightness of clothes, but what about 
lavishness or gaudiness. And if anyone dare question our pet truths, we become hostile or resentful or judgmental. See, some of what Jeremiah was going through this evening, we see it in a broad scale in our culture. We see it, we see it all the time in politics today. We see it all over the place, the idea of people getting angry when they're told the truth. But what about you? See, because this is not just like for them. This is a human nature thing. And unfortunately, one of the things that we as humans often become very good at is if, if we're not very sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we compartmentalize our Christian life and we have pet sins that just don't seem to fall under the areas of conviction like others do. It's like certain ones we just kind of give a pass to. This is just the way it's going to be. This is just how I react. I'm just a moody person. Uh, I, just, I just say the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh, well, you know, when a person says that they're outspoken and they just say the first thing that comes to their mind, well, no, they just don't know how to bridle their tongue. This is an offense to James. This is an offense to the Word of God. And yet they're calling it just a natural characteristic of them as if somehow that means they don't have to work on it. How do you respond to truth? How do we respond to truth? All right, we've turned our thoughts inward. Allow me to turn them outward for a moment. We are at a point in our society where truth, ha hatred for truth has reached epidemic levels. Where a person, for the sole offense of uh, being that he said something that is true, but which an individual society or culture doesn't like, can have his life ruined or his reputation destroyed. And what I'm going to say next may sound very self-serving, and I wish that there was a way I could express it otherwise, but it needs to be said. We've been considering Jeremiah as a minister tonight, and I am going to be taking this application toward that. I want to help you understand this a little bit this evening. Ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ have a very difficult calling. We are asked by God to be shepherds of God's flock, to tell the truth to those who will listen, And while I thank God that I've never had death threats, as Jeremiah has had, the amount of spiritual and emotional weight that bears down on a minister who is charged with a message that he knows people are going to resist and nitpick or even be openly hostile to is a difficult calling. Jeremiah writes like a man who is discouraged and slightly confused here, doesn't he? And this is not an unusual state in which a minute for which a minister can find himself in. For him to tell the truth and to be resisted, for him to speak the truth to those who don't want to hear it, and for him on the other end of it to be attacked or his family to be attacked for what is being said. And it is a burden to be sure. Now, I'm not saying by any means that ministers are victims. I'm not saying that we need to be coddled or handheld or treated super special or anything of the sort. I'm just saying that when I read the sorrows and the frustrations and the discouragement of men like Moses... Read a lot of that, don't you, in the wilderness journeys. Men like Jeremiah, we can read it here among other passages. Men like Isaiah, uh, David, Habakkuk. I find myself in many of those expressions, something I never expected when I got into the ministry. And God's people need to know this about ministers. You need to understand the weight of the responsibility that lives and souls place upon a, a, a called truth teller. Fathers, you know this to some degree. You know the weight and the burden of, of truth as it relates to your children. My, my uh, in-laws brought a really neat picture 
to me, it's an it's a, it's a artist rendition uh, framed that they brought from their house, and we want to hang it in our house now. And it's a picture of a child in bed, and there's the, the, they're in a house, and behind him is a picture window with the moon and the stars. And the father on his knees with his hands on his child praying to God. The idea being interceding and pleading God for that child, for that child's faith, for that child's decisions, for that child's future, for that child to to be a follower of the true and living God. That weight of burden on a father as he sees his children growing, as he desires them to become men and women who love the Lord. The recognition of the the souls that are under your care and under your your, uh, authority, that you are having to shepherd into young men and young women who love the Lord with all their heart and with all their souls and with all their might is a burden. It's a burden. And that is, if, if for, for those parents, the mothers, the fathers, for those of you that can, can relate to that in that way, maybe some of you have a friend, maybe uh, someone that you've discipled, someone that you've led to the Lord, and you felt that burden. Jer- that, that is what Jeremiah is feeling here. That's what he's going through. And this leads us to our second point. And, and this one, I, I said I apologize. This is going to be a little bit jarring because we're going to go from talking about this emotional subject and I'm going to actually come out of emotion for a moment. Um, Touch not the Lord's anointed. We see in this text the situation where Jeremiah's life is threatened and God responds to this direct threat with direct action. Jeremiah is called a prophet of the living God and God is doing exactly what he promised to do. I mentioned before God's promise to Jeremiah. We read that promise in Jeremiah 1, 17-19. The Bible says this, Thou therefore, God speaking to Jeremiah, gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defense city and an iron pillar and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. So God warned Jeremiah that there was go- that they were going to resist him, that they would not prevail against him because God would protect him. And this is part of a principle as it relates to God's ministers, those unto whom, not just of, of prophets, but of kings, as we think of Saul and of David, of those who God has set aside for a specific purpose. He has called them unto a task, and when he has called them unto a task, effectively the principle is those that resist the man that God has called unto a certain task, those that resist him in that task are men who, are, who have placed themselves in the, in the path of the Lord, and they're going to get run over. So David was strongly resisted by Saul, if you remember. But David was unwilling to overthrow Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. Add to this the protection of God for the prophets of God. Add to this the commands of the word of God to be subject to uh, uh, elders of the church. And this creates a scenario where many pastors, perhaps particularly in our circles, uh, where the man at the top model, right? There's kind of a man at the top. Where where, um, in churches perhaps like as ours, um, state that the church should not contradict or disagree with the pastor by God's decree because that is touching the Lord's anointed. Um, And I want to iron out a couple of these concepts, beginning with the contradiction of the manner in which some people use this principle and then by God's 
Grace briefly lay it out properly. Simply put, I have no idea what would ever give me the idea that I am one of the Lord's anointed in this, in this context. Not every person who is leading a New Testament church is, would, would by any stretch of the imagination fall under the category of the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed were those who had been given by God a unique authority to accomplish a, defi- a definitive spiritual purpose. Be that a king in the theocratic system or the theonomic system of Israel in the Old Testament or a prophet called by God to deliver a certain message and enabled by God to do so or one of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ protected in their ministry or Jesus Christ himself who was protected until the time that, that, that it was the Lord's will. Each one of these had a particular commission of the Lord and they were protected in that commission. Now in the church, beginning effectively in the second generation, we uh, have regarded that apostles and prophets have passed away. Their function was replaced by what? What is the, the, the function? What has replaced the function of the apostles and prophets in the church? Is it pastors? Well, no, it's not. The function of those who tell the will of the Lord is the pastor, but the one that replaced the apostles and prophets was the Word of God. This is what replaced the apostles and the prophets. Not this. Not this, this. Right? Not this, this. This is what replaced the, the apostles and prophets. The words of the apostles and prophets. Not this. If we want to talk about the Lord's anointed in its purest context, let's talk about this. This is the Lord's anointed, not this. Now, could I be commissioned for a purpose? Could the Lord have a purpose for me? And I set my sights on that purpose and the Lord enables me for that purpose, and I go do that purpose, yes. Now, would this be a definitive, the Lord has told me, you know, audibly? No, none of that, right? I feel the burden of the Lord, the Holy Spirit leading, and I pursue that. Will the Lord push away any resistance in that scenario? Yes. For that scenario, for that calling, for that purpose, the Lord will open the doors. Resistance will be futile. But when we talk about the direct one-to-one comparison between the Lord's anointed in the Old Testament, the Lord's anointed in the New Testament, the protection upon them, where does that naturally find its outworking in our society and culture today? It's the Word of God. It's not the pastor. To that extent, this idea that floats around in our circles where some pastor decides he wants to do something foolish or wrong or maybe even not foolish or wrong but he's going to do it against tremendous resistance from the people that uh, are, are in his church or whatever the case may be and he appeals to this idea thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed that's, that's not a valid appeal to a biblically sound principle I am not something special I am not some sort of top man who cannot be touched, who is above rebuke, who is above reproach, who is above any sort of uh, uh, disagreement. And if we've trained ourselves to think that way, um, then we've done a disservice to what the Scripture speaks of when it speaks of the Lord's anointed. The scriptures are the means by which God's truth is expressed. Ministers are simply called to make the expression of God's word their primary task in this life. To that end, it's entirely inappropriate, as I said, for me to expect or demand that I am treated as the Lord's anointed as pastor of Legacy Baptist Church. 
I am acting in a manner that is contrary to the teachings of the Word of God if I do that. And if I am acting in a manner that is contrary to the Word of God, then the church not only has the right, but the obligation to correct me in love as it would any other believer who sets himself in opposition to the Word of God. And the idea that I cannot be touched because I'm the one that stands behind this pulpit is not valid. So then if a pastor cannot claim the right of the Lord's anointed, what rights do I have as a pastor of this church? I have the right to be honored to the extent that I rule well. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, we talked about it this morning. In Sunday school, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. The context of this honor is not necessarily all financial. The principle is simply that to the extent that I or any pastor labors faithfully, particularly in the word of God and in doctrine, that there is a blessing and an honor, that there is an expectation of uh, care, that uh, there is a blessing to be bestowed upon the minister. Secondly, as we studied also this morning in Sunday school, I have the right to the benefit of the doubt. 1 Timothy 5.19 Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. I have the right to receive the benefit of the doubt when facing accusations, but only until those accusations can be credibly corroborated. I do not have the right to get away with proven wrongdoing because I'm a minister of the gospel. I do not have the right to be given leeway in sin because I'm a pastor. In fact, quite the opposite ought to be true. This teaching in 1 Timothy 5 happens to come after a certain set of teaching in 1 Timothy 3 that talks about the qualifications for the bishops and the deacons. And those qualifications mean that um, I ought to be held to a higher standard, not a lower one. If there's an accusation, I deserve the benefit of the doubt. But if the accusation can be substantiated, then as I am entitled to a double honor for ruling well, I ought to rest under double accountability for my disobedience to the scriptures. But here's the point. The church is not a little kingdom. And I am not a little king over my theocratic kingdom. The church is the flock of the good shepherd, and I am the under-shepherd charged with protecting the flock and feeding the flock. My job is to do what I'm told by the word of God and by the spirit of God. My job is to stand firm from truth, regardless of who or who does not like it. My job is to lead by example in humility, not to command obedience or respect. And when I do my job, I'm entitled to honor before the church and am promised honor before the Lord, double honor. And when I don't do my job, I am entitled to the same thing that anyone in the church is entitled to, which is they that sin rebuke before all. I am not infallible. I am not the Lord's anointed in that particular context. I am an under-shepherd of the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. Third and final point. Will they really get away with it? Short answer, of course, is no. We've talked about this several times throughout the book. In the midst of the storm, however, this can be a difficult perspective to maintain. And I, that's what I want to talk about. I've talked uh, on any number of occasions about will they get away with it. I don't want Jeremiah to become repetitious, just like I don't want any of them in application to become repetitious. Uh, it's my prayer and my hope that, that it hasn't felt like that. But Jeremiah questions the Lord in his judgments. And what I want to do here is I want to, again, ask you to turn your hearts inward. We're talking, we've talked about ministers, and this is something that is, is certainly applicable to me and my need to turn my heart inward in this as well. 
When you are discouraged at the exaltation of the wicked, why do the wicked prosper? Why do they that do wrong seem to have, have so much uh, uh, um, happiness and, and, and uh, things go so well for them? As we've seen any number of times, even in our Revelation series, things will not always go well for the wicked, right? But again, I would like to go in a slightly different direction. As it relates to God's justice, let me remind you of your obligation. As it relates to God's justice, God's going to take care of that. But let me remind you of your obligation. And it's spoken of in a no, uh, no, better, no more eloquently than by Paul in Romans 12. Verses 17 through 21. Paul says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I believe I could probably spend my whole life just trying to work out the principles of this single passage in my life and still have plenty of work to do on the day I die. Humans have a very strong sense of justice, warped though it may be at times. We want justice. We want revenge. We want to see wrongs righted. We want to see comparable treatment. If I'm nice to you, I expect you to be nice to me. If you're mean to me, expect me to be mean to you. If uh, I'm going to meet force with force, meet kindness with kindness, and that's all well and good for the unbelieving world, but this is not the Christian life. This is not the Christian life. Recompense no man evil for evil. With every ounce of your, belie- of your being, live peaceably with all men. Avenge not yourselves, but give place under wrath. And why is that the case? Because God wants Christians to be the doormat of society. Is that it? The calling of the Christian is to be walked over until he dies, and then that's it, right? Wrong. Because God has promised to avenge me. And God can do a better job than ever I can and if I take it upon myself to avenge myself, then that's it. Just like the one who, who, who gives to be seen of men or who prays to be seen of men, and in being seen of men, they have their reward. If I avenge myself, I have my vengeance. God's not going to step in anymore because I have avenged myself. So then what do I do? Well, if my enemy's hungry, I feed him. I don't make him suffer. I feed him. I don't tell him, go find a friend, let him feed you. I feed him. I don't laugh in his face. I feed him. If my enemy is thirsty, I don't tell him, well, I hope you find a well. I give him a drink. I don't tell him, well, go find a friend to give you a drink. I give him a drink. I go pull it from the well. I give him the drink. And maybe, just maybe, my good will overcome his evil. And maybe, just maybe, my good will bring him to the Lord. And if not, two things are at least always true. First, By leaving it in God's hands, God will take care of it and do it far better than I ever can. And second, I will have successfully combated the philosophy of Satan in this world. I will have shined light into darkness. I will have done it God's way. And I will be another thing that when that man stands in judgment, God can look and to say, you have no excuse Look who you came across. Look what he did for you. Look at the testimony of the Lord that was in him. You have no excuse. So not only will God avenge me, but then God can use me, will use me. 
And if we have that, what more do we need? Jeremiah stopped to ask God about his judgments. He was discouraged because the truth which he proclaimed was rejected. How do we relate ourselves to various truths this evening? What about God's judgments? Have you found yourself frustrated? I know that um, I'm not preaching to a group of ministers this evening in the sense of pastors. Many of you are ministers in your own right. But all of us can relate to these emotions. How are you doing? How are, how are you doing with the frustrations, perhaps, that are in your heart over the proliferation of evil? Does it make you want to respond in kind? Let us remember this evening of these exhortations. Let us remember the Lord's exhortation. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.